All right, let me invite you to turn to Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7 this evening. If you were to talk to an Old Testament saint, I wonder what kind of words he would think of when you said the word Messiah. I tend to think that he would think of words like this from Isaiah 9.6. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given, and the government will rest on his shoulders. And his name, the Messiah, will be Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. And for this Messiah, there will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from them from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord will accomplish this. I think passages like that would come to mind, Isaiah 9, 6 to 7. And perhaps passages like this, Isaiah 11, 1 through 5. When they're trying to think about who the Messiah is, what He's supposed to do. Isaiah 11, Then a shoot will spring from the, stems, from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding. The spirit of counsel and strength. The spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. And he will not judge by what his eyes see, nor make a decision by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he will judge the poor and decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. And he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. And with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Also righteousness will be the belt about his loins and faithfulness the belt about his waist what you hear there from those passages that are clearly about the Messiah is that He is one who will rule. That He will be a powerful ruler. And that He will bring vengeance upon all those who have opposed God. That He will be the judge. That He will slay the wicked. That the zeal of the Lord will be upon Him. And He will have this government of peace. He won't allow opposition. That's what the Messiah was supposed to do. In the mind of the Old Testament saint, he was supposed to come. He was supposed to do miracles. He was supposed to restore a godly kingdom. And he was supposed to do it on this earth by ruling with justice and equity. But what if someone came along and he called himself the Messiah and he did these miracles, but he didn't slay the wicked? He didn't conquer. He didn't rule. What if he lost? What if he was conquered? What would we think of a man like that? Would we write him off as a fraud? Would we give him a second chance? Or would we mark his ministry as incomplete? And these are the kind of questions I think John the Baptist is asking as he's rotting in Herod's prison. Who is this Messiah? I mean... John was sure that he was the forerunner of the Messiah. I have come to prepare the way of the Lord, the Messiah. That's what I've come to do. He knew that he was led by the Spirit to announce Jesus and his kingdom and to baptize Jesus. But now, as he's sitting in prison, Jesus is not doing anything about it. And he's being opposed. Jesus is being opposed. What kind of Messiah is this? He's not winning. He's losing. Let me read our passage for us this evening and we'll see that the Messiah 
uh, who the Messiah is and what He's come to do. And it's a little bit different than what uh, the Old Testament saint expected. Luke chapter 7, verse 18. This is the Word of God. The disciples of John reported to Him about all these things. Summoning two of His disciples, John sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the expected one, or do we look for someone else? When the men came to Him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to to you to ask, Are you the expected one, or do we look for someone else? At that very time, He cured many people of diseases and afflictions and evil spirits, and He gave sight to many who were blind, and He answered and said to them, Go and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. Blessed is he who does not take offense at me. When the messengers of John had left, he began to speak to the crowds about John. What did you go out in the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? No, but what did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? No, those who are splendidly clothed and live in luxury are found in royal palaces. No, but what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I say to you. And one who is more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. I say to you, among those born of women, there is no one greater than John. Yet, he who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. When all the people and the tax collectors heard this, they acknowledged God's justice, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected God's purposes, uh, purpose for themselves, not having been baptized by John. To what then shall I compare the men of this generation? And what are they like? They are like children who sit in the marketplace and call to one another, and they say, We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say, He has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, Behold, a gluttonous man and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet, wisdom is vindicated by all her children. What the people needed to learn, what John the Baptist needed to learn, and his disciples was that the Messiah has come and they should not reject Him. The Messiah has come and He should not be rejected. In verses 18-23, through we see that the Messiah has come, but it's unclear what He's come to do. The Messiah has come, but it's unclear what He has come to do. John is confused about who this Jesus is. In verses 18-20, through that's why he sends his disciples. John has some followers of his, and this is not... Uh, some sort of prideful things. This was completely right, just like Paul had people who followed him. Follow me as I follow Christ, Paul would say. And I think John was doing the same sort of thing. And and he was John was confused about who this Messiah was. Jesus had been doing miracles from chapter 4, verse 14, to chapter 7, verse 17. And His miracles included casting out demons, healing the sick, and even raising the dead. And yet, John the Baptist is sitting in prison. Let's turn back to chapter 3. We'll see how he got there. Chapter 3, verse 18. 
so with many other exhortations he preached the gospel to the people. But when Herod the Tetrarch was reprimanded by him, John the Baptist, because of Herodias, his brother's wife, and because of all the wicked things which Herod had done, Herod also added this to them all. He locked John up in prison. Okay, so this doesn't immediately follow uh, what's going on here. Remember, John the Baptist is out in the wilderness. Herod doesn't take him off into prison immediately because the very next verses tell us in verses 21 and 22, what's he doing? He's baptizing Jesus, right? So this is just a, um, this is just a narrative way of including a detail that the readers might want to know because the, the focus is going to shift in Luke's Gospel from John the Baptist, the forerunner of the Messiah, to Jesus, the Messiah. So as the focus shifts, John, Luke is kind of done with John the Baptist for a while, and so he's going to say he's actually been taken off into prison by now. And this happens much later, but he wants his readers to know what's happened to him. And so John's sitting in prison and apparently has some disciples coming back, maybe following Jesus, finding out what Jesus is doing, and then going back to the prison to tell John what's going on. And John hears about all these works that Jesus is doing, and he's not surprised because his expectations would have included these kinds of miracles, that he is healing the sick, that he is helping the lame to walk or making the lame to walk. He is you know, even going uh, one step further and raising the dead. And I think John's not unsure that Jesus is the Messiah. He's just unsure what the Messiah is supposed to do. Look at chapter 3, verse 15. Now, while the people were in a state of expectation, chapter 3, verse 15, and all were wondering in their hearts about John as to whether he was the Christ. Remember, they're saying for John, are you the Christ? Are you the Messiah? Verse 16, John answered and said to them all, As for me, I baptize you with water, but one is coming who is mightier than I, and I am not fit to untie the thong of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winning fork is in his hand and thoroughly clear... Uh, uh, to thoroughly clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. There, even in verse 17, you see what kind of idea John has about the Messiah. And this is not an improper understanding of the Messiah, but he knew that someone was coming after him that was going to be greater than he was and that he was going to come and burn up the chaff. That sounds like what? That sounds like mercy ministry? No, it sounds like judgment, Right? So he saw that Jesus was going to be one who came in judgment. And the fact that Jesus was the Messiah was clear to John because in John chapter 1, verse 29, what does he say when he sees Jesus coming? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He made that connection rightly that Jesus of Nazareth was the Messiah. But now, something is out of place. Something is not right. The Jews would have been expecting Jesus to come, the Messiah, that is, to come in judgment. And so, if that is the case, why would a righteous man like John now be sitting in prison in chapter 7? And also, why would, why would the Jews reject Him? Right? If He was the Messiah, He was supposed to lead this government of peace with the Jews at the center of this government. And so why would the Jews reject Him? This doesn't make sense. His ministry, yes, He's healing people. He's casting out demons. That all makes sense. But here's a couple things that are out of place. Jesus is being opposed by His own people. And 
John is sitting in prison. What is going on? Who is this Messiah? What is he supposed to do? So he's sure that this he's pretty sure that Jesus is the Messiah, but the evidence doesn't square up with his expectations about someone who's going to come and burn up the chaff in an unquenchable fire. So, in verses 19 to 20, he sends his disciples, John does, to ask Jesus if he is the Messiah who was promised in the Old Testament. And Jesus responds to John's confusion in two ways. Jesus responds to John's confusion in two ways. Action and with action and with word in verses 21 through 23. First, Jesus responds with action. Notice verse 21. At that very time, he cured many people of diseases and afflictions and evil spirits and gave sight to many who were blind. Here's what I think actually happened. That the, Chronologically, these disciples come to Jesus and they say, Jesus, John sent us to ask you, are you the expected one or should we expect someone else? And instead of answering them directly, Jesus brings the next person who's waiting to be healed and heals them. Next person that's possessed by a demon, cast him out. Next person who comes being carried because he's lame, he makes him walk. He causes the blind to see. He does it right in front of John's disciples. So the first way that he responds is with action. Instead of answering the question with a direct yes or no, he uses both action and words. Now, if that is the only response that the men received, then that should have been enough. Right? They could have gone back to John and said, do you know what he's doing? When we asked if he was a Messiah, he started doing the things that the Old Testament promised that the Messiah would do and that only the Messiah could do. No one else could heal the blind. It was only the Messiah that could heal, uh, that could make the blind to see. Certainly this coupled with all those other healings that he did made it clear, but that wasn't enough. Jesus wanted to make it crystal clear to his to John's disciples that he was the Messiah. Indeed. And so he responds also with word in verses 23, 22 and 23. Verses 22 and 23. He confirms that he is the Messiah. Verse 22, Go and report to John what you have seen and heard. Here's what he doesn't say. I am the Messiah. I am the expected one. You should not look for someone else. That would be a direct answer to the question. Instead, he heals people and he says, Go tell John that you have seen me do this that I've given sight to the blind, I've made the lame walk, I've cleansed the lepers, I've made the deaf hear, I've raised up the dead, and I've given the gospel to the poor. Go tell them that. Now, this last allusion, if you'll notice in your text, at the end of verse 22, the poor have the gospel preached to them. How is that set off from the rest of the text? Okay, it's in capital letters, which tells us what? Okay, it's probably... Probably from an Old Testament reference. This is just the way the translators help us see that this actually came from the Old Testament. And let me just show you where that's already been brought up in Luke's Gospel. Turn back to chapter 4, verse 18. Okay, this actually comes from Isaiah 61. But here's the last prophecy that Luke had recorded in his Gospel. It's Isaiah 61, and it's the very one that Jesus alludes to here in Luke 7. So between Luke's four, Luke chapter 4 and Luke chapter 7, he doesn't mention another Old Testament prophecy. And so the last one the reader would have in mind was Isaiah 61. Notice verse 18. Luke 4, verse 18. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me 
because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. Okay, so let me stop there and just give you a little bit of background. This is when Jesus is in the synagogue and they hand him the Isaiah scroll. And he finds Isaiah 61, I believe, actually finds it for himself and begins reading from Isaiah 61 and goes through verse verse 3. And he sits down and says, this has been fulfilled in your hearing. In other words, I am the one who is anointed. Now notice what it says, uh, some of the things that this Messiah will do. Okay, he, he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. That sounds exactly like what Luke records in Luke 7. But notice what else he says. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recover and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. Here's Luke. The last record of an Old Testament prophecy being fulfilled is in Luke chapter 4. And it is Jesus reading from the Isaiah scroll. And He says, here's what the Messiah is. He's the one who is anointed by the Spirit to preach the gospel to the poor, to give sight to the blind, to proclaim the favorable of the year of the Lord. But there's another thing in the middle there that we don't want to miss, and that is to give release to the captives. Turn back to chapter 7. And notice what's missing in our list here. Okay, because we do have the blind receiving sight. We saw that in Isaiah 61, which is what Luke 4 is drawing from. Okay, The blind receive sight. Okay, The lame walk, lepers are cleansed, deaf hear, dead are raised, poor have the gospel preached to them. But we're missing something. Here's what Jesus is saying to John's disciples. I am the one who has been appointed by the Spirit to do these miracles. And yet, there are a couple things that are missing. I am the expected one, Jesus is saying, by saying, I fulfill this prophecy in Isaiah 61 that I had read earlier. But there is no mention in His list of proclaiming release to the captives or setting free those who are oppressed, which would have been specifically helpful for John who's sitting in prison. And so here's what Jesus does. Look at verse 23, chapter 7, verse 23. He encourages John to persevere. Blessed is he who does not take offense at me. Now that comes across as negative or as a rebuke, but I think it's actually an encouragement. The word offense is derived from a word that was used to describe the trapping of birds. And Jesus is saying here, don't trigger the bait stick that sets off the trap. In other words, don't be scandalized by my actions or, in this case, my lack of action. Don't be scandalized by that. Even though what I'm doing or, in your mind, what I'm not doing, don't meet your expectations. Recognize that I am still fulfilling the Old Testament prophecy about who the Messiah is and what He will do. And this was designed to be an encouragement to John. John, listen, you may not understand why you're sitting there in this prison and why you're suffering for my sake. But I want you to know that I am the expected one. And and blessed is he who does not take offense at me. So, first, the Messiah has come, but it is unclear what he's come to do in John's mind and in, in I think, the Old Testament believer's mind. Number two, John the Baptist announced the arrival of the Messiah, but John's message was rejected by some. 
John the Baptist announced the arrival of the Messiah, but John's message was rejected by some. Verses 24 to 20, uh, 24 to 30. Jesus uses this confusion to teach the crowds. He's going to send the disciples away. That is, John's disciples. We see that in verse 24. When the messengers or the disciples of John had left, he began to speak to the crowds. So apparently the crowds are like, well, what, what was that all about? You know, what, what were you talking to them about? What, what, what was the significance of that? And Jesus wants to show that John the Baptist was actually sent to be my forerunner. First, he says in verse 24 that John was not insignificant. He says, what did you go out in the wilderness to see? Talking to the people who went out to see John. Did you go out to see a reed shaken by the wind? That is, you know, this reed that kind of just sways back and forth by the wind. Some, somebody that's insignificant. Is that what you went out to see? And the implied answer is no. Verse 25, we see that John was not regal. He was, he was not the king. But what did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Or probably better translated, fine clothing? And then the implied answer is no, because those who are splendidly clothed and live in luxury are found where? In the palaces, right? They're found in the royal palaces. So you weren't going out to see a king. You knew he was dressed strangely. And you weren't going out to see someone insignificant. So what did you go out to see? Verse 26, you went out to see what he really was, and that is John was a prophet. And he says, I say to you, one who is more than a prophet. And the reason is because, verses 27 and 28, John was the greatest prophet of all. If you did a list of the top five greatest prophets of all time, John would have been number one. John was greater than Moses. John was greater than Abraham. John was greater than Elijah. John was greater than them all. That's what Jesus said. He is the one who's prophesied in Malachi 3.1 who would prepare the way of the Lord. That's what verse 27 comes from. I send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. This is the one. He's the one who came prior to me to announce my arrival. And the reason that he's superlatively better than all the others is because all the other prophets announced the coming of the Messiah, but they didn't know who he was. John, however, was more important than all of them because he knew who this Messiah was. He showed explicitly, back to John 1.29, Behold, the Lamb of God. Elijah couldn't do that. Moses couldn't do that. Malachi couldn't do that. Only John could. And yet, as great as John is, the greatest of all prophets, any one of you who are a child of God is greater than John. That's what he says at the end of verse 28. Yet he who is least in the kingdom is greater than he. I think it would have been amazing to be Moses or to be Elijah, to live in their shoes and to see God's mighty works on display You know, at, at the top of Mount Carmel and God just bringing down fire on the altar when it seemed impossible and to see people raised from the dead, to have God speak directly to you. But any of those prophets would have traded all of their experiences to live one day in your shoes. And you know why that is? Because you stand on this side of the cross. You stand on this side of the arrival of the Messiah. See, they only waited for Him. 
we now are part of Him. We're now part of His family. And this makes sense when we think about the analogy. I mean, who is more important? The one who sends out the invitations to the inaugural ball or the one who actually gets to go to it? All right? Think about the, the wedding of, of uh, Prince William and Princess Kate. Right? Who's more important? The person who, who sends out the invitations to people or the people who are actually there? Okay? And, and the point is, is we are there. We are part of this kingdom in the sense that that we know the Savior. And John was only the one who sent out the invitations. He was the greatest of them all as far as prophets go, but we exceed even John because of our place within the kingdom. Sometimes we don't really appreciate all the blessings of living as servants of Jesus. And that's why I think you have places like when Peter talks about how angels long to look into these things. They long to see what it's like to have Christ, God the Son, come into our race. Right? Christ didn't come into the angelic race to die for them. He came into our race. And sometimes we don't really appreciate all the blessings that we have. Jesus makes that clear. Anyone who, has, who is a part of the kingdom is greater than John. There are two responses to the revelation given by John. One is of acceptance and one is rejection. The outcasts acknowledge God by being baptized by John. Verse 29, when all the people and the tax collectors heard this, they acknowledged God's justice, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But, here's the other reaction, the Pharisees and lawyers rejected God's purposes for themselves, not having been baptized by John. This is the difference between the true followers of Christ and only the nominal Christians or the nominal followers of Christ, the ones who don't do it in name only. That is that they actually accept God's purpose for themselves. In this case, it was to go to John out in the wilderness and be baptized. This was the right thing to do. It was to acknowledge their um, humility before God and their need to come to God. This is the way that God would bring about uh, or, or the way that they would acknowledge their salvation that God had brought to them. And the Pharisees didn't see any need for it. We don't need to be baptized. We don't need anything to be cleansed of anything. We don't need to be saved. We don't need to acknowledge our following of Christ. And so they didn't do it. And so that leads us to our third point this evening. To reject John and Jesus is to reject the salvation that God offers. To reject John and Jesus is to reject the salvation that God offers. Verses 31 to 35. Jesus here uses a parable to show the religious leaders their rejection of Him as the Messiah. I want you to notice here in this parable that there are two types of children. Okay, See if you can point them out as we, as we look here. Verse 31, To what then shall I compare the men of this generation, and what are they like? They are like children who sit in the marketplace and call to one another, and they say, We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not weep. So, What's the one kind of? What, how could we describe one kind of children that are here in these verses? How about how about the playful children, right? The ones that want to play. They're the ones who are calling out to other children and say, "Hey, we played the flute and you didn't come, and we we sang a dirge, kind of a more solemn tone, and you, you didn't want to do that either. We tried both ends of the spectrum and didn't work for you." Okay, so you have the playful children. And what would we call the other children? 
What was that? On the non-playful children. That's very original. How about the brats? Okay, we'll just call them the brats. They don't want to play. They're the kind that just kind of sit in the corner and, hey, we're going we're gonna to play something fun. Do you want to play? No. We're going to play something a little bit more serious. Do you want to play? No. Okay, so you have the playful children and you have the brats. Now, let's try to think about who is who. Okay, Jesus is talking to the Pharisees and directing this at them. Who is Who are the playful children and who are the brats? It could be that Jesus and John are the playful children and that they're trying to get the religious leaders to play, so to speak, but they won't play. That is, if even if Jesus is open and kind to them, you know, more more open and playful, they're like, no, we're not going to do that. That's not we have too strict a rules. And then John, he's more solemn and he he's more serious. And they're they're like, no, we don't want to do that. That's way too strict for us. Okay, it could be that Jesus and John are the playful children and the Pharisees are their brats. But notice the text. I think the text tells us something different. Look at verse thirty one. To what then shall I compare the men of this generation, and what are they like? They, who's the they referring to? Okay, this generation. Look back up to verse 31. I com- who sh- whom shall I compare the men of this generation, and what are they like? And then he continues, they are like. So the men of this generation are like the children who sit in the marketplace and call out. What kind of children are those? The brats or the playful? The playful. This generation is like the playful children. They're the ones who call out. And so what does that make Jesus and John in this analogy? The brats. Okay? Here's what he's saying. We can't get Jesus and John to play with us. For John... They wanted him to be less solemn. They wanted him to be a little bit looser. And so they play the flute for him. Come on out, John, and play with us. Do it according to our standards. And John says, no, I'm not doing that. For Jesus, they wanted him to be more solemn, to be more mournful. And yet, what's Jesus doing? He's eating with tax collectors and sinners, as he's going to say. He's more cheerful. In other words, they wanted John and Jesus to conform to their expectations. And because John and Jesus would not do that, they were branded by the men of this generation of this generation as brats or deviants. John and Jesus are rejected. And in so doing, they actually reject God's offer of salvation. It's clear that John and Jesus are rejected because Jesus makes it clear in verses 34 and 35. Verse 34. I'm sorry, verses 33 and 34. Verse 33. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say he has a demon. See, we play the flute for you. You're eating no bread and drinking no wine. We want to get you a little bit looser, and you won't do it. And so, you know what we're going to call you, John? You're a demon. Jesus, in the next verse, verse 34, the Son of Man has come eating and drinking, more playful, right? More cheerful. Behold, a gluttonous man and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. You say, come out, Jesus, and, and sing this more solemn dirge with us. 
play this more solemn game with us. Jesus says, no, I'm going to be a friend of tax collectors and sinners. They labeled him as a drunkard because he did this. You see, John and Jesus didn't meet the expectations of the Pharisees. And so, what do we take from this? What, what do we learn from this? Okay? John the Baptist actually didn't quite understand what to think about the Messiah. He's a little confused. He wasn't rejecting the Messiah, but the Messiah wasn't quite meeting his expectations. And the same is true for the Pharisees, but in a much worse way because they're actually, their, their rejection is leading to a lack of belief. See, John's is much different. So what do we learn from this? Verse 35. Wisdom means aligning ourselves with God's purposes. Wisdom means aligning ourselves with God's purposes. Verse 35. Yet wisdom is vindicated by all her children. Okay, Vindicated is a word that means to be shown to be right. So, the children here are those who are the fruit of that wisdom. So, if wisdom is presented, it will be shown to be right when those who follow wisdom produce fruit. Here's what Jesus is doing. He's connecting the dots between those who accepted John's message and those who are wise. Look at verse 29. When all the people and the tax collectors heard this, they acknowledged God's justice. All the people who heard this, now look down to verse 35. All the people who heard this and responded rightly are all her children. That's wisdom's children. Now look back up to verse 29. They acknowledged God's justice. Those are the ones who embraced wisdom. Those are the ones who justified wisdom, showed it to be right. So here's what Jesus is saying. Those who reject wisdom actually reject God's purposes. And in doing so, they reject God's means of salvation. When we recognize wisdom for what it is, that it comes from Christ and it it calls for a change in us, it, it means that we are showing wisdom to be right, and we're following God's purposes. When we reject wisdom, we show that that we reject God's purpose and we reject the salvation that comes through God's purpose. So two two, uh, principles that we can draw from this in application. Number one, the Messiah is different than we expected. The Messiah is different than we expected. John had different expectations of what Jesus was supposed to be and do. And some of those were legitimate expectations, right? He was supposed to release the captives. And he was supposed to conquer the enemy. And he was supposed to, as the Messiah, rule and reign. And John was not the only one with unmet expectations because the disciples had real trouble understanding who he was as well. Even though they acknowledged him as the Messiah... Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Even though they acknowledged that, they still were scratching their heads when, when they looked at Jesus. It wasn't until after He died that they started to understand. They started to put the pieces of the puzzle together. You see, we now know that the Messiah will release captives and He will uh, 
He, he will conquer the enemy and He will rule and reign, but we also know that that doesn't happen in His first coming. When will that happen? In His second coming, right? When He comes to rule and reign, He's going to come with the sword and then He will rule with the sword from His mouth. But if we think of ourselves... So, so for them, they didn't quite see the whole picture. They didn't recognize that Jesus was coming twice. They just thought the Messiah is supposed to win. And He's not winning. We now see, as we look back on it, we say, well, we understand what's going on. But what about us? If we think about ourselves, we have to admit that we often live our lives with unmet expectations about Jesus, don't we? Sometimes when Jesus doesn't meet our expectations, we are left scratching our heads saying, Jesus, is it you who is supposed to come and judge my enemies? Is it you who's supposed to come or is it someone else? Because right now, it feels like Satan is winning. It feels like all those who oppose me are winning. And so are we supposed to expect you to do this or someone else? And I would say to you that we groan with all creation for God to restore things back to its Edenic state and for God to right all the wrongs. But in our lifetime, it doesn't happen. And we are left, like John, left in prison, wondering when Christ is going to release us. And you know what, for John, did he ever get released from prison? No. He died in prison. And the end of Hebrews tells us that many believers followed in John's footsteps in that way. That they died not having received the promise. They died without receiving the fulfillment of their promise, the promise they received from God in this lifetime. But that's okay. And that's okay for us. Because we don't live for this lifetime alone. We live for the next life. And our promises are primarily for us in the next life. And so, when our expectations are unmet, it's okay. Because Christ is coming. Christ will right all the wrongs. He will justify your works in the sense that He will show you to be right. It will be clear when the wheat and the tares are separated, who is on the Lord's side? There will be no more of scratching our heads saying, you know, is God going to have the victory or not? I'm not sure. Messiah is different than we expected. Number two, the Messiah provides for us more than enough to trust Him. The Messiah provides for us more than enough to trust Him. Blessed is he who does not stumble over the mystery of Jesus. Christian, I say to you, trust Him until the end. Show God's wisdom to be vindicated, to be right by allowing the Spirit to produce in you the fruits that are consistent with repentance. Allow the Spirit to do that. And recognize that Jesus provides for you more than enough to trust Him and to follow Him. Let me just close with the words from a song that have helped me and have been encouragement to me. It's called, My God is More Than Enough. Though I groan with all creation, He has prepared for me a place where I'll evermore be with Him. And behold His blessed face. No more sin or tears or sorrow when the former things are done. God will change me to be like Him in the image of His Son. My God is more than enough.
sufficient for each hour. His wisdom guides my steps, and I'm strengthened by His power. And when He shed His blood and gave His life to set me free, He proved His wondrous love was more than enough for me. Let's pray. Father, we can appreciate the confusion of John because we have expectations about what the Messiah is supposed to do for us in our lives. And we're often left wondering what's going to happen and when you're going to justify the wisdom that you have presented. And we can appreciate the disciples of Jesus who struggled with what Jesus would do. We can appreciate the opposition that Jesus faced from His opponents who labeled Him as as a brat, a deviant, because we often are labeled in the same ways. Because we we hold to uh, the commandments that You've given to us, we often are labeled as intolerant and unwilling to show the liberal kind of love that, that our world is looking for, which is really not a love at all. And so we, we can appreciate that. And, and Lord, we long for the day when wisdom will be vindicated by all our children. And Lord, it will be a great testimony to Your wisdom to see all the evidence of Your truth based on all the followers who are, are standing there. We will be letters written by You for all the world to see of Your great wisdom. We pray that the result would be that great glory comes to You. We pray that You'd help us to recognize the, the, uh, the importance of life. How critical it is for our lives to be ones that are in submission to You. Let's take our walk with You seriously. May You strengthen us to do it through the power of Your Spirit. pray in Jesus' name. Amen.